The last couple of weeks, we spent talking about a couple of the parables of Jesus. I have to confess, I, I did the first one on the, the lost chapter, Luke 15, about the uh, prodigal son, we call it. Then I decided because of some other things, we'd just do the other three big parables of Jesus. I don't know what that noise is, but could be this microphone down here, Steve, most likely. But I thought we last week we uh, talked about the parable of the sower and the soils. And this week I want to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, of course, these accounts are found in, in the various Gospels. I focused for this lesson on uh, Matthew 22 in the account of that parable here under the title of Love Your Neighbor. And I think that's what this is about. Now, we went, we went through some of these things a couple different times years ago, but I want to try to bring some of this into focus for you today to understand this parable. Let's start in Matthew 22 and let's read the text. Then we'll have more to say about it in an introductory way. In an introductory way, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" And Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And I think he means by that, that when you take the Ten Commandments and then all the other 500 different ordinances in the Old Testament, I think the Jews, the, the Pharisees said there were 633 commandments in the Old Testament uh, that God gave them. You could take all of those. And Jesus says you can categorize them all under love, love God, or love your neighbor. And I think that's true. When you even you can even look at the Ten Commandments and see that easy breakdown of into those two categories in the in the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, on these two then hang all the law and the prophets. Now we needn't dismiss the law and the prophets because they were the Old Testament and we live under Christ's law, because the Old Testament does not contradict God's mind and his will. We just live under something better and, and the fulfillment of all of those things. And so really this is saying what God has told man to do, all that God has told man to do can be found in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So we should not be dismissive of those. Now this, uh, there are two questions then that come up, come out of this, this whole process of what are the two great commandments? One is, what is love? How do you define that? And what does it mean? I think that's one of the big problems of our day and age and why there's often such a great divide, a lot of misunderstanding religiously and every other way because people do not have a correct definition of love. Uh, beginning in the 1800s or so, it was subverted by the Romanticist movement into being just a, a, about your feelings and your emotions. And really, love today has come down to what my personal preference is and, uh, about, and that's what love is, whatever I prefer. You can't challenge my love because I prefer this. And so love has been perverted a great deal. So the, we're going to see what Jesus says a little bit about what is love. And then the other one is, who is my neighbor? You see, who is my neighbor? We're going to talk about here. And we'll see why that is because, uh, and both these are answered here in this parable, uh, here in Luke 10, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It answers both of these questions because Jesus gives this in response to this to some degree. And so a teacher stands up and says to him, a lawyer stands up in Luke 10, verse 25, 
and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here's another lawyer asking a question, trying to trap him or trick him. Now, I'm, I'm not sure at first, when you first read this, asking a question to test a teacher does not necessarily show bad character to probe a teacher for what his answer is and to see what he means. But in this case, it seems later he may have not a good attitude about, at all about what he's trying to ask. It may be an insincere question, but still a good one that the gospels record. And so Jesus said to him something very significant. When he said, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Or how readest thou, the King James says. In other words, he points this supposed lawyer who should know the scriptures and says to him, what does the law say? God's already answered that. Why are you asking me? God's already answered that. How do you read it? That tells me something even more critical almost, that we can understand what God has written. Even Jesus expected that they would be able to read what Moses said and what the prophet said and come to some correct understanding of it. And so he challenged him, what do you say the law said? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. So the man got it correct. Is it possible for us to read the Bible and understand what to do? It is possible. Right here is a perfect example of this. And this isn't the only time Jesus uses this phrase, how do you read it? What does it say? What do you think it says? Because he challenges people to go back and read what Moses already wrote. And that's what they should have been doing. Jesus wasn't going to tell them anything that was going to contradict Moses. Jesus was going to tell them things that would contradict the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and they thought that was co contradicting Moses because their traditions to them were equal to Moses. But Jesus didn't think so, of course. So he wasn't going to contradict Moses because God gave Moses that law. How, why would Jesus contradict it? He would contradict the Pharisees, and they understood that. That's what they got mad about. And so you answered, right, do this and you will live. Now, the interesting thing about verse 28 about in the grammar that we don't get in our English is this phrase, when he says do this, it really means keep doing this and you will keep living. In other words, it's possible if you stop doing this, that you will not live in God's mind. You'll be dead. So this is a present tense verb. In Greek, that means a continuous action in the present tense. Something that's going on continually. And that's the way it's used. Greek has a, a tense called aorist, which is more, they would say, punctiliar. Uh, men landed on the moon in July of 1969. That's a one-time event that would be expressed in the aorist tense. Then other tense and other things are expressed more continuously. And so he says, keep doing this and you'll keep living. But he, that's this lawyer, verse 29, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh, I think I'll trap you now. So who's my neighbor? Now, the, the, here, a little background on this. I may come to this later in the lesson. A little background here. This was a live question, question among the Jews and still is. Who is my neighbor? Because to a certain segment of the Jews... The only neighbors they were they were required to love were other Jews. They weren't necessarily to love Gentiles or strangers, they would call them. Others said, no, you have to love everybody. And, and I think it's easy to me to go to the law and show that they can, were not allowed to treat uh, Jews and Gentiles differently in their daily dealings with them because they were all their neighbors. And we'll come back to that a little bit. But that part probably was behind this. He wants to see if Jesus loves Gentiles, which would be a no, no, no. Not supposed to love Gentiles. 
That was the charge against Jesus in the long run. You preached a gospel to save the Gentiles. That's why Paul was killed, because he preached a gospel to the Gentiles. And you see them testing Jesus a little bit right here too. Then Jesus answered in verse 30 and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So this Levite even kind of stopped and took a look and kept going. But a certain Samaritan, here's this neighbor that they don't think is a neighbor because he's a Samaritan. He journeyed and he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and banished his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever you more, whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. According to what people say the money was worth, this man gave him enough money to pay for three weeks of lodging and care by the wages of that time, day and time. About, now this was written several years ago, about $1,400 worth of care for this man he gave him. That's a lot of money, isn't it? He didn't hand him a couple quarters and say, here, take care of him, and that was the end of that. He actually went down deep and gave him what he needed to be taken care of. So which of the, these three, Jesus says, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, the man answering, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Another present tense word. Go and keep going and doing likewise. So Jesus turns this around and says, he says, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, what kind of neighbor are you? Are you going to be a neighbor to people? He kind of turns the question around in the end on this person. Now, a little background is when we were in Israel last year, or whenever it was, I think it's last year, who knows? Uh, it was early in 2020, so everything since then has been kind of weird. This is what it looks like on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, almost all the way. And you're going down, we went down in a bus on a fairly good road today with guardrails on most of it. Did you go this way, Fred, when you were there? Did you go that Oh, not you, you were with us that day. I was thinking of the other trip you took. You're going down at a very steep angle most of this time. And you're always curving back in and out and going down. It's a very steep. That's what it meant, go down from Jerusalem. It doesn't mean go south. It means go down the hill. That's why we know the people who wrote this were actually lived in Palestine and the other place they talk about because they use words like this to show they actually knew the topography and how things were. We'll say go down to West Palm Beach. We mean go south. But they meant go down a hill. And look how de desolate it is. Now, if you were there in Jesus' time, uh, this road would wind back through these hills and you couldn't see around the curves. You're walking along in the dark or in, in, and you can't see anywhere. And this is where thieves and robbers were. In fact, I even read the other day that it, the Israeli patrols are pretty much stepped up here because there are still areas where you're subject to being robbed by highway robbers in this area going down to Jerusalem. And so this is the place Jesus is talking about. These people are trying to get through here in a hurry, as it were, but they're going around some rough territory that's very dangerous. And here's something else that happened on that road. You're going from way above sea level in Jerusalem, 
down to the lowest place on earth at the Dead Sea. It's like a 1,400 foot drop, maybe it's more than that, right down to the bottom. And halfway there, you get more, not halfway, I'm not sure what it was, you get to sea level, they got a little pull out on the road there, and this guy has his camel there. These people are smart. He has his camel there and take you for a camel ride. A little discussion about how much it was going to be, but uh, I didn't care how much. Me and you were going to ride a camel, so we rode a camel. Needed a shower afterwards, actually, from the smell of this camel. But he rode us around. I got a video riding around. It's kind of fun. Anyway, a poor cam. I just felt sorry for the camel. Let me tell you about something that was done about this. Now I can't tell you that this. What I'm going to tell you next is Jesus' main point, but it certainly fits his main point. Some researchers at this seminary, which is a religious school, John Darley and Daniel Batson, decided to replicate the story of the Good Samaritan with seminary students. A few variables were introduced. The seminarians were interviewed and asked why they wanted to go into the ministry. There are a variety of responses, but the vast majority said they wanted to go into ministry to help people. Well, that's what you'd expect, isn't it? They want to help people. That's what Jack Kevorkian says too, though. But anyway, they were asked to prepare a short sermon Half of them on the story of the Good Samaritan, the other half on some other topics. And finally, they were told to go over to a building on campus to present their sermons. Along the way, the researchers had strategically positioned an actor in an alley to play the part of the man who was mugged in Jesus' story. And so he slumped over, groaning loud enough for people to hear. Now, the researchers thought that those who said they wanted to go into ministry to help people would be those who were just prepared, had just prepared a sermon on the Good Samaritan, We'd be very likely to stop and help. They wanted to go help people. They get a sermon on the Good Samaritan, had to think about it. But that wasn't the case at all. The reason is the final variable introduced by the researchers. Just before the seminarians left to give their sermon, the researcher looked at his watch and said one of two things. To some, he said, you're late. They were expecting you a few minutes ago. You better hurry. To others, they said, you're early. They're only expecting you for a few minutes, but why don't you go ahead and start heading over there? Interested in the result, only 10% of the seminary students who were in a hurry in a hurry stopped to help, while 63% of those who weren't in a hurry stopped to help. For what even the ones who didn't prepare on throwing them out. And, and so the variable there was who's in a hurry? In several cases, a seminary student going to, to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he heard on his way. Sound familiar? Darley and Batson concluded that it doesn't matter whether someone wanted to help people, whether someone had just read or was prepared to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan. The only thing that mattered was whether or not they were in a hurry. They concluded uh, the words, you're late, had the effect of making someone who was ordinarily a compassion into someone who was indifferent to suffering. Here's the great irony. The priest and Levite were probably on their way. This fellow had to the temple. He was wrong because they're going away from the temple. They were so busy loving God that they didn't have time to love their neighbor. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, the way you would apply that is most of us spend our entire modern lives in a hurry, going from one thing to another. And we don't have time to help anyone along the way that we just happen to meet. We don't have time to interact with a clerk or someone on the, on the street or someone else we meet. We have time to interact because we got our mind focused on all these important things we're doing and all of them good, probably. And so we don't really interact. Now, this brings up, though, the subject, what I want you to get today from the sermon, who is your neighbor and what do you owe your neighbor in this regard? And sometimes we just have to realize we're too much in a hurry for God to work in our life. See, 
This fellow that wrote this little story and concluded this would, would conclude it more or less by saying, we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. Okay, I think that's not, he means we get some kind of a direct word from God. It isn't a direct word from God, stop and help this person. God, the Spirit, the Spirit already told me to stop and help this person a long time ago, didn't he? The Spirit already told me to stop and help this person. Already told me what my responsibility was to people like that. I'm just not listening. We're not paying attention. And in that sense, we're not hearing his voice. Now that we have to just go through life listening, if I don't hear anything, I'm clear. I'm good to go. That's kind of foolish, isn't it? Because we encounter things all the time in life where we could do something different than we do if we stopped and thought about what was the right thing to do and what, what God has already told me to do. And the circumstances that you're in, here's the thing. The Bible is a book, it's words, it's in your heart, but until it encounters something in real life and you can recognize in real life that this is that, that this is the circumstance, sometimes you don't do anything about it. What we need is more wisdom and more intensity to see that this is the circumstance. That is the person that I need to talk to or help. That's the person. They don't might not look like who I'm expecting, might not be in the circumstance I want, but that's the person that I need to do something about. Now, here's what happened in Jesus' life, for example. Enters up at Jericho, on down where these people were going. Now, they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. In other words, this is a busy, important man. You be quiet. Let him go on his way. He's got a lot of things to do. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus stood still. He stopped and commanded him to be called. He said, bring him to me. So he came over to Jesus and he healed him. So the other people want Jesus to rush on by because he's got a lot of things he needs to be doing. And Jesus took this, he wasn't, now, I'm not going to talk about what he knew and what he didn't know as the Son of God. But in the story, as, as a man walking, he didn't know he was going to encounter Bartimaeus. That wasn't part of the plan. He just encountered him. For where we're sitting, it would be what we would call a chance or a coincidence. And, but when Jesus saw what it was, he stopped and did what was right, what he could do in this case. And that's something that we need to understand is often our duty to do with those around us. Maybe we do need to spend more time with this child. I, I've told this before, but I, I'm telling again in this case, I hadn't really thought about this. But uh, when we, this happened many, many times before this. But when we first moved to, to uh, Jensen Beach, Fort Pierce, 20 some years ago, 26 years ago, I rented a house over in Leilani Heights, a little small house. And so I, only had a couple of bedrooms, had all these kids. So I had to uh, put a wall in the middle of the garage and make an office out in the garage for myself. So I would be out there in this little, little garage area and, and studying or something, and I had a computer even then. And I remember one day I'm out there, and Susan, she was probably in junior high school then, junior high or high school, she came to the door right there by my office. And she asked me something and wanted to know something about something and what she could do about it. And then we had a short talking conversation she walked away and when she walked away 
I just hung my head because I said, Mike, you never even took your eyes off this computer screen the whole time she was standing there. You never looked at her, took your eyes away from what was on that screen. You just made a few comments to her and sent her away. How many times have you done that in the lives of your children to this point? It was terrible. I felt terrible about that. She didn't think anything about it probably, but I did. Because I was so interested in what I was doing, saving the world, that I couldn't even talk to my daughter. Is that the way it is? Sometimes? Yeah, it is. And Jesus, though, stopped and said here. Now, there's another way to look at this parable. Somebody else has analyzed this parable this way. There are three rules of life. The iron rule that some live by, which is the philosophy that might makes right. This is what's the practice of the robbers. They took from others whatever you please. We don't talk about the robbers in the story very much. They're not really central to what he tells them to do, but they certainly weren't loving their neighbor as themselves. They practiced the iron rule, I want it, I'll take it. And they do, and they did. The other rule is the silver rule, which is do no harm to others, but look out primarily for your own interest. The plight of others cannot be of concern. Now, our world's big on everybody doing good and all making a difference, but still, I think most people practice the silver rule in their life. They just let other people, they, they do what, they, what benefits them the most. And in the end, their philanthropy and doing good, who's it doing good for? It's really doing good for them. They put on a resume, a college application. They feel better about themselves. They're doing good to others. Is doing it really is for their benefit, not the other person. And I know that because of the way they do the good sometimes. But we live by this silver rule. And this was the practice of the priest and the Levite who, who were busy with doing something else. It's not, I, that can't be my concern because I've got my own life to live here. And I'm going to do that. And then you had the golden rule, which was treat others as you would like to be treated. This was the Samaritan's disposition. He put a wounded natural adversary, somebody who normally would be his enemy. He put this person above his own safety and his own financial interest and take care of this person. I think that's an interesting way to look at the main characters in this parable. And see, they each live by a different principle in their life. And unfortunately, we moderns do a lot of talking about doing good. We don't often actually do it for anybody but ourselves, unfortunately. By the way, it's another pet peeve of mine. The saying, I want to make a difference. Adolf Hitler made a difference for crying out loud. Okay? Uh, Jack the Ripper made a difference. How about making a difference for what's good? See, that would actually have you focus on what is good and what I should be doing more than me, 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 me making a difference because I'm going to be so good. You see, that's unfortunately the way that is. That's what make a difference is. You need to make a difference in a way that is actually right and good and proper and, and wholesome. That you need to do that, but it's about somebody else. Now, what is love? Well, we could read 1 Corinthians 13. I want to take the time this morning to do that because I want to do, do a couple of other things. But, but love is, as I've told you before in looking at this word agape in the New Testament, the, the most common word for love. It's interesting. The word agape is the highest word for love in the in the Koine Greek language, but it's also the most common in the Bible. It isn't that common in Greek literature. Certainly isn't the most common word for love in Greek literature, but it is the most common in the Bible. Agape. And what agape means is active goodwill towards somebody else. It's not just feeling a certain way about things and feeling like uh, we want to hold hands and love the whole world. 
It's having active goodwill toward other people. That, mean, that means I am to be doing what I do toward them and saying what I say toward them with the idea, what is, the, what is in their best interest for me to do and say? What's in their best interest? Not in my own, but in their best interest. Not what's going to make me look good or uh, going to get me out of this, but what's in their best interest. And sometimes that means saying unpleasant things to them, things that they think will be unpleasant. It's telling them no. It's not saying what you, they think that you think what they think you should. Love is active goodwill. This is the love of Jesus Christ toward us. He came not just to feel, the idea that, that Jesus loves me is not that Jesus has some affection, feeling, affectionate feeling toward me. That may be. But it's more that he came to do something that actively was for my benefit, not for his own, that I couldn't do for myself. This is agape. That's what distinguishes it from all other forms of love. And we could talk about the four loves of Greek. I'm not going to do that this morning, bore you with that. But, but this kind of love is costly and doesn't have a sure payback either, though. Now, um, philos, philio, the other, one of the other forms of Greek, maybe I will talk about the other forms of Greek love. Uh, the other form of Greek love is phileo. We get the word Philadelphia from that. Philadelphia is a combination of the word philos or love and aldelphia, which is a, which is sister. So Philadelphia is not the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia is literally the sister of city, city of sisterly love. Don't tell anybody from there that though. If it was brother love, it'd be Philadelphos. But in any way, just so they know, it's a sister city. Philadelphos. Uh, we have uh, the word for hospitality in Greek in, in the New Testament is. Phila xenia. The xenia part is stranger. And philos is love. So hospitality is literally a love of strangers. Love of somebody that's not your immediate family. The idea is, or, or worse. And so philos is reciprocal love. We love our family because they love us and we love our friends. This is friendship. We have friends. Why do we have friends? We have friends because they like us. That's why they're our friend. We tell our kids to choose good friends. They don't choose good friends. Their friends choose them. That was my experience in school. My friends chose me to be, that's who I was friendly with, people that were friendly to me. That's pretty normal, isn't it? That's what friendship is about. And, and you do something nice for somebody, it's not uncommon to think that they might do something nice back for you. That's what friends do. That's philos. That's not agape, though. And then love is intrusive. This is what I find frustrating about being a preacher sometimes. People want me to help them and love them, but they, they view any questions I ask as intrusive to them. If I'm going to love you, I'm going to have to intrude on your life. Can't be done any other way. That's what I like about Judy. She lets me intrude on her life when the very time I met her. I let her intrude on my life. That's how come we can love each other now. It was 46 years yesterday. We can love each other because it's intrusive. Married couples that don't intrude in each other's lives do not love each other. If I see something that doesn't look right in my wife as far as how she's acting or what's going on, I'm going to be intrusive enough to say, what's going on? Are you okay? Do you need to go to a doctor? Do I need to stop doing that or whatever it may be? Why am I saying that? Because I'm nosy, selfish? No, because I...